busy sidewalks dressed in holiday style in the air, there's a feeling of Christmas on and on. Actually, the song is pretty stupid if you think about it. It really doesn't say anything of any value. And what it does say probably isn't real true. I mean, I grew up in Chicago City, and I can't say I've heard silver bells on the street corners ever. I mean, maybe the... But I doubt that those are silver. I have a feeling that they're covered with something or other. But what it did do for me as a kid, that and other, uh, some of the other uh, songs, secular songs, is it, it brought about a, a sense. It did a feeling of Christmas, a sense of everything's okay, everything is good, everything's exciting. It was a false sense, no doubt, but a sense of security, a sense of peace, a sense of... It, it, it brought that about. You know, other things that fueled that, that feeling was the feeling of Christmas was, if you're my age, you recognize this, maybe a little older, uh, the Sears Dream Book. Remember that? When that, the Wish Book came? Oh, it was before the Internet, you guys. And you know what? Life was good before the Internet. We don't think that life just started then. Half of the book, or maybe two-thirds of it, I don't know, but it seemed like the only important part was the back, and it was all the toys, right? And you go through page after page of four-color, you know, cornucopia of, of veritable happiness right there, and you're like, whoa, man. And you want it, got this, and you're circling and making your list and checking it twice multiple times. But it brought about that that sense of, of excitement and and uh, security, I guess. Also, the, the Christmas movies, TVs, they kind of fuel that. It's, you know, keep pouring the fuel on that, that, that fire of feeling. Uh, the Grinch was actually came out in 1966. I think every year I've seen The Grinch at least once. And we, we saw it just the other day. As a matter of fact, you know the, the Grinch. He goes into Whoville when they're all sleeping. And he takes all their toys and their trees and their, their food, the roast beast. He takes it all. And then he takes off back out before they get out, Mount Crumpet. And when he's out of eyesight, not earsight, he stops. Because he knows the Who's are waking up. And when they wake up and they see all their toys and stuff gone, what are they, they're going to say, boo-hoo. That's what he's thinking. And so I've got to hear that noise, is what he says. But he doesn't hear that noise. They start to sing. And this is a really a crisis moment for the Grinch. It says that he puzzled and puzzed till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't thought of before. That maybe Christmas, maybe, doesn't come from a store. That Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. And... Uh, we know for many Christmas is a bore, and for others Christmas is painful and sore, and though it may not come from a store, the one thing the Grinch doesn't tell us is what Christmas came for. He never says what it came for. It just it means something more, but he won't tell you what. He doesn't know what. Maybe it's just his feeling, the da who don't it's just a feeling. It doesn't we can't really define it. And we we, we know though reality is that, that one day, for every one of those who's, darkness is going to come. Even the adorable Cindy Lou Who, one day, she's going to find out. She's going to run face into life. And she's going to realize that, that life is a little more vicious than the Grinch, and it can't be tamed with a song. And, and it's going to bite and hurt. And sooner or later, we all know this, every one of those who's, we know that that bite, sooner or later, is going to be fatal. It just will be. I'm glad they've got their feeling, but it doesn't really solve anything, does it? And we, we realize that Christmas comes to London when we watch Scrooge. 
and the Christmas Carol. And we love watching this transformation from this guy from being, you know, ornery and mean and selfish and greedy and bitter and all these things that he is. And then he changes and we, we're, yes. And he's now selfless and kind and, and generous and wonderful. And certainly this is better than this. And this is going to make Bob Cratchit's life a whole lot better than this. No question about it. But we know that sooner or later, Tiny Tim is going to die. And sooner or later, Bob Cratchit is going to face stuff that all the kindness and generosity, which is good, is in the world is just not going to fix. And so you ask, well, is Christmas just a feeling? And maybe it can alleviate some of the darkness and pain a little bit. But bottom line is, you know, Dr. Seuss and Charles Dickens did the best they could with their worldview. But it's just, it just is what it is. This is just a, a feeling at, at best. Well, Christmas has come to Whoville, and it's come to London, Victorian London, and it's come to Erie, and it's come into your world and mind. So we, we have to ask ourselves what the question the Grinch never answered. Okay, it means more, but what? What we want to do over the next few weeks is we want to visit cities in the Bible where Christmas came. And we want to look at what transpired and see if there's anything that we can glean from that that as Christmas comes into our life, we're able to make sense of it. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. And I know what some of y'all are thinking. Isaiah, you go to Matthew or you go to Luke if you want Christmas story. What are we doing going to Isaiah for? Well, in, in chapter 11 of Matthew... John the Baptist is in prison. He's getting ready to die. It's not, it's not good. It's not looking good for him. And he knows it's not looking good for him. And so he sends a, a, a group of people and his entourage to Jesus and says, Jesus, are you the one we were supposed to be looking for or is there somebody else? Now, part of the reason he's in prison and he's going to die is his proclamation that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he's having some second thoughts here. Now, Jesus... If you feel this is a great opportunity for Jesus to simply say, yes. You know, are you the Messiah? Yes. Okay, that would solve a lot of stuff, but Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Jesus says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. You think, yes, probably would work better. Well, Maybe not. Think for a second. You're going to have surgery. And the surgery you're going to have is a very complicated, very intricate surgery. And potential for going wrong is really high. So you're talking to your surgeon before the surgery. And you say, are you competent to do this? He will answer one of two ways. Either A, yes, I'm competent. Okay. But what if he said, I've done 200 of these. And 99% of my patients have recuperated fully in three months. Matter of fact, I performed this very procedure on two U.S. presidents and the king of Saudi Arabia. And not only that, but 14 NFL teams have contracted with me and I consult with them on this very issue. I performed this surgery on Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and you see how they're doing. Now, if if the surgeon said yes, or if he said the second thing, what's going to give you more comfort? I mean, anybody can say, yes, I want to see the proof. And see, Jesus knows that what drives John the Baptist is an understanding of the Old Testament. John knows all of those, especially those passages that talk about the coming Messiah. He has meditated on those things. He has memorized them. They're part of his mind and his heart. He knows. 
And so in Jesus, what he's doing here is he's... Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Jesus is, is, is just reminding John of those things. And, and Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, it says that when Messiah comes, he's going to do these things. And so Jesus is thinking, I could just tell John, yes, I'm not sure that's a lot of comfort. John knows the scripture, though. And so I'm going to go back and say, John, you remember when the scripture says the Messiah is going to do these things? I've done them all. I'm doing them. And then the text, Isaiah passages don't say that the Messiah is going to raise the dead. Jesus just added that one. Said, and and for, better, you know, for, for good luck, just so you know, also raising the dead, just so John knows. John, what John knew about the Messiah and Isaiah changed his life in a very dark time, and it will for us as well. Uh, so uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Let me mention a couple uh, or something. Real important, because a lot of people want to ditch reading prophecy in the Old Testament, because, you know, it's just so complicated. It's just, and it can be theology 301, 401 stuff. I got that. But let me mention two things about it. Don't, don't be afraid of it. But you just need to know this when you read prophecy in the Old Testament, that the prophets do not distinguish between Jesus' first advent and his second advent. They don't draw a gap. And what I mean by that is we know when Jesus came the first time, he came as a baby and he died for the sins of the world and he, he was gentle and he sent it back to heaven and, and, and got that. That's his first advent. His second advent, Jesus said, I'm coming back. He's coming on a war horse. There's going to be Armageddon. He's going to set up his kingdom eternal with judgment that will happen just before that. Now, two advents. But when the prophets saw this, they saw them as one event. It'd be like if you were way back looking at a mountain range, and it looks like all the, the peaks are all together. They're all there. But when you get right up to it, you realize, oh, there's one mountain here, and then there's a huge gap, a valley, before the next mountain. There's, we, we realize on this side of the cross that there's a big gap between Jesus' first advent and second advent. But the Old Testament writers looking from a distance didn't always see that. So sometimes they mix those things together. Also, Old Testament writers, when they're prophets writing about coming Messiah, this is so sure in their mind. This isn't like it might happen. It's a possibility. Let's just kind of hope. This is so sure in their mind that sometimes they use past tense or present tense verbs for something that's going to happen way in the future. And you read this and it looks like it's, he's saying it's already happened and you know good and well it hasn't happened, but so maybe you're understanding it wrong. Don't let the verb tense thing confuse you either. Now as we come to 9 of Isaiah, let me give you just a little bit of background about right here. 300 years before right here, King David ruled. And, and, and Israel was like what the United States was to the world, Israel was to the world. I mean, the United States maybe 40 years ago, some would argue today, that's fine, where we were the feared group, nation in the world. We controlled all the finances. We controlled the economy. Our military was superior. Everything about us was superior. Well, Israel was like that during David's reign. They were, they were, they were the place to be. And so God comes to David, because David's heart is right, and God says, David... You will never, ever fail to have a son on the throne. I'm raising up from, from you, David, somebody who's going to reign for forever. And their kingdom is going to blow yours away. That's, that's the promise that's made to David. Then you come here, Isaiah 9. It's 300 years later, the people have walked away from God. The people have 
so common. They've take, taken all their pride because they're so good and powerful. They've hitched all of their, their hope, their security to political solutions, uh, to materialistic solutions. And so they have fallen far. Isaiah chapter 1 God says, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation. You don't want God saying woe to you. He says, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. And this is... God saying these things is kind of scary. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. This is the state of Israel. And therefore, chapter 8, just, be, just before we get here in chapter 9, it says, when someone tells you consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? In other words, the people were all into witchcraft, occult at this point. Not just, we're going to be... Uh, agnostic sort of secular people. These guys are, are high into spiritism and, and witchcraft. He says, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and his testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. And here he's, he's describing their situation right now. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. This is what they've been doing. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. That's what's going on right now. And in Israel, in Jerusalem, actually, the... uh, uh, this is a bad, bad time. They've had a civil war. The north is almost already gone. It's already been all exiled out and conquered. The Assyrians are coming against Jerusalem. They've laid siege to it, just kind of trying to starve the people out. If you read Jeremiah, the stuff that's going on in Jerusalem, it's not good. Uh, disease, famine, parents eating their own children in order to try to stay alive. It's just not a good thing at, at all. This is the kind of thing that's happening. And they've got this question that says... I thought God promised that we were always going to be, he would have this person on the throne. What happened? And they're just in darkness. And then you come to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless. Stop right there. Isn't that a great word? Nevertheless. You deserve chronic judgment and pain and disaster and disease. That's your lot. Nevertheless, that's good. You you deserve all the hopelessness that you have right now. Nevertheless, it's it's a good, it's God's MO. It's it's the way God works into our darkness. When we look and we think, you know what, there's just no way out. I I see there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Everything is spiraling down and it's just going to keep heading that way. God looks and says, nevertheless. So he's giving them hope here. He says, there will be no more gloom for those who were in, the, in distress. And then he tells us something about that hope. First thing he tells us about it is it's a surprise. He says, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. What in the world does that mean? How much do you know about Zebulun and Naphtali? Uh, probably not a lot. And you know what? Don't feel bad because that's the goal. You're not supposed to know a, a lot. Zebulun and Naphtali are way in, in the north. They're uh, Hicksville. So it's like McCain or something. Just like way up there. No one should know anything about that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Actually, I'm from Chicago. You know what? We think that Erie's kind of Hicksville. There, I've offended everybody, so we're okay right now. But here, look at the map for a second. This right here, Jebus. I was just trying to wake people up. This is actually Jerusalem. Okay, that's the key place. Now, Naphtali and Zebulun. Well, this is way up here. See this? Uh, now, what? What? what what, come, what, what is the deal about that? You would think if God's going to do anything, it's coming out of Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem, I mean, people from Naphtali and Zebulun, if they want to know God, you know what? They've got to come down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a major metro area. If, in fact, you're going to find atonement anywhere in this world, you have to come to the temple to sacrifice. That's where you can know God. And I think what God is saying here is there is hope. But you've got to realize the hope is outside of yourself. It's, it's away from you. You know, we think, my gifts, my abilities, my contacts, my smooching, my work ethic, I can solve this and fix it. And then with a little luck, I'm going to be able to pull it off. And God says, there is hope. But sometimes we just look for it in the wrong places. It's with the glitz. It's with the polish. It's with the killer resume and the killer connections and, and the killer credentials. That's where, that's where the solution's found. And he says, no, 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 no. This, this, by the time Isaiah writes here, the uh, Zebulun, Naphtali, the whole area has already been decimated by the Assyrians. The Assyrians have exiled the vast majority of the Jewish people. There are some still there. But what they've done is they've Im- imported all their other conquered peoples. That's why this whole area is called Galilee. See the little Sea of Galilee up there? The whole area is called Galilee. It ends up being called Galilee of the Gentiles because it's such a melting pot. Such a melting pot. And, and, and the people in Jerusalem thought very ill of this. Remember, you've got um, uh, John chapter 1. You've got Philip who comes up to, to, to Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, we found him. We found the one Moses wrote about. We found the Messiah. He's here. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, guess where Nazareth is? It's right up there in the Zebulun area. It's right in the Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus of Nazareth. And what does, what does Nathaniel say? Nazareth? What? What? Nazareth? Can any significant, important thing come out of Nazareth? It was just viewed as a very lowly, empty, nothingish sort of place. God's answer is going to come from this area. Matter of fact, you know what? This cool verse here, it's actually quoted by Matthew in Matthew 4 when Jesus in Zebulun, Naphtali, that region around Sea of Galilee, that's where Jesus started his ministry. Most of his ministry would stay there, as a matter of fact. And, and Matthew quotes this verse, out of Zebulun and Naphtali, right? The light is coming. God's answer for you and I today, you need hope. Don't be looking in the wrong place. It's there to be found, but you just have to be looking in the right place. So he, he goes on. He gives us, lets us know that not only is this a great surprise, but it's a great light. In chapter 9, verse 2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. 
on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, in scripture, light is often associated with God. Right from the very beginning. In the beginning, right? Um, there was the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the surface of the earth. Then God shows up. And what's the very first thing God says? Let there be light. Light is often associated with God in scripture. Light is often associated with life. You know, they say that if the sun goes out, at the end of the day, it'll probably, Earth as a whole will probably be about zero degrees. In one year, it will be down to negative 100. It will finally stabilize at around negative 400 degrees. I think it's safe to say most of us would die from, from cold. We have not seen cold like this. We would probably die from cold. Now, we might not die of the cold first. We might actually die of, of lack of oxygen because as soon as the sun stops, photosynthesis stops. There's nothing to breathe. I think it's safe to say the light goes out. And you know what? Our life goes out. And what he's saying, these people in darkness, and you know, these folk don't even know how dark life is for them. Uh, great light. It's, this, it's, it's this, this hope that's coming. And he, he says that this is also a great joy. In verse 3, he says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Now notice how many times joy is mentioned here. They rejoice before you. As people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now, what is joy? Joy is not something you can't fake. Joy is an emotional response when everything's going well. Now, we don't have too many of these times. but When everything is going the way it's supposed to be. There's nothing to fear. There's not, nothing that's threatening. Everything is... I was between freshman and sophomore year... It's the summers, just summers when you were a kid were just wonderful, weren't they? It was just wonderful. I played tennis like every day. And Jack and I, good friend of mine, we would go to the tennis courts at the high school. We'd, in the morning with our thermoses, we'd play until late afternoon. Well, one day we took a break and we went to Oak Foods, which was the cheap little grocery store in this residential area. I don't know how they got zoning, but maybe grandfather did. I don't know. But either way, so we go there and I bought a quart, and he did too, a quart of strawberries and a quart of chocolate milk. And I just have this picture in my head. We are sitting out on the lawn of Oak Foods after playing tennis for what seemed like forever and the prospect of continuing to play it forever. I'm there with my best friend. We're eating these strawberries. We're drinking this chocolate milk. And you know, I'm thinking, life doesn't get better than this. (laughs) This is it. Not a care in the world. Just tennis, good friends, great food. It was just life was good. It was just good. Joy. And you know, the interesting thing with joy is it's really what God wants for us. It's, one could argue it's why Christ came. We have next slide. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And of course, the good news is Jesus is going to be born. And he says, when Jesus was, him coming is cause for great joy understanding that, that, that the world is as it's supposed to be. Then Jesus, here in John 15, he just told them he was going away and that the Holy Spirit was coming. I think that, actually, I think he's referring to everything he said to them. He says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete or full or overflowing, maxed out. 
He's, he's, Jesus' teaching for us is that we might have joy. I wish we had more, more time to unpack this, but you know, the cool thing about this verse is Jesus knows, he's already told us, and we know this from first-hand experience, that in this world you have many problems. But according to this text, even though everything isn't as it's supposed to be, the knowledge of what will be one day, the knowledge of who our God is, can bring us joy. John Orberg has a great quote on this. He says, We will not understand God until we understand this about him. God is the happiest being in the universe. Now, God also knows sorrow. He would go on to say, you know, Jesus is a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. But the sorrow of God, like the anger of God, is his temporary response to a fallen world. That sorrow will be banished forever from his heart on the day the world is set right. Joy is God's basic character. Joy is his eternal destiny. God is the happiest being in the universe. It's what he would have for us, a deep Deep joy. And so you can imagine these, these people who are having anything but joy right now. He says, God's got hope for you. God's got joy for you. Not like what the world can give. God's got real joy for you. And they might say, well, how? Look at our situation. Look at us. Well, verse 4 it says, for as, in the day, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Now, we read these things sometimes we're not sure still what to, I think something good may be there. I don't know what. If, if our world, think about our world. If I said words like ISIS, Taylor Swift, uh, Aaron Rodgers, Pulitzer Prize, Washington, D.C., uh, uh, on and on, you would all recognize, yeah, 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 we went, that, that's our world. And if we took those same words and told them to ancient Israel 2,700 years ago, they'd be saying, what, what, what are you talking about? Well, they too had their versions of Taylor Swift in Washington, D.C., and ISIS and Ebola. And so they talk about those. And when we read them, we're going, wow, wow, wow. So we need to understand their world. So when he says that uh, in the day of Midian's defeat, all of these guys knew exactly what he was talking about. And if you're not sure, let me encourage you to get Mike's CD. He preached on this, Judges 6, just a while back, uh, Leadership in Unlikely Places. It really is an excellent message. You need to grab that. Uh, but what he's referring to is this time when Midian to Israel was like ISIS to a North Syrian Kurdish city. You know, they were just threats, threats, threats. And uh, Midian would, would come in and just decimate Israel. And then they would leave. And you're going, Phew. but then they would come back again and do it again. And then they would leave. And so if Midian wasn't there wiping you out, you lived in anxiety of when they were going to come and wipe you out. And then God delivers Israel in kind of a miraculous way. Get Mike's message. It's really kind of cool. In a, in a miraculous way. And he's saying just like that. Remember when, when all of Israel was underneath and then God delivered in a major miraculous way? He can do that. He can, and this is how he's going to do it. He's going to shatter these things. Now you've got to keep in mind, Assyria 
would love to brag about how bad it would be for their conquered peoples. They would put burdens on their conquered peoples. They would, life would be really difficult for the conquered peoples of Assyria. But God says, regarding uh, the, the burdens, the bar across their shoulders, it would be a, um, when they conquered, when they brought them into captivity, the rod of their oppressors, all those things shattered. He says that every warrior's boot and, and uh, every was the garment rolled in blood. Keep in mind, when they fought, they didn't have guns. They were all swords. And so most probably, if you walked away from a battle, if you made it, you were probably covered in blood. And so when it talks about the, the boots and the covered in blood, these were the, the warrior's armor. And what God, don't miss this, it's so important. Those things is what he's saying that will rob our joy that threaten our existence, that take away those things that we might be afraid of, those things that would hurt us, those things that that scare us, those things that make us nervous, it's going to remove them. They're going to be all gone. Absolutely nothing to complain about. You can't complain if you want. Absolutely nothing to be afraid about. Absolutely nothing to be... You and I don't know life in that kind of a world. But God says, it's coming. This is what I'm talking about. You say, well, I want, I want that. That's, that's okay. Give me, sign me up. But who's going to bring that in? It goes on, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And, God's solution, this is real important, for our darkness, for our pain, for our grief, is not a system, it's not a, a process, it's, it's not a program, it's not uh, a philosophy, it's not a doctrinal statement. Don't get me wrong, I'll go to the wall for right doctrine. We have to believe what God says. But sometimes folk can look at all the right words on the page and put their faith in the page. It's not even the right words on the page, it's a person. And the person that God's sending is not somebody that's going to out-brute force Assyria. It's a baby. You go for crying out loud, a, a crying out loud, no pun there. A baby? What is with that? What is with that? A baby? But this is no normal baby. He says this, this, notice this, for to us, it's you and I, the whole world, a child is born and a son is given. Uh, every a scholar, commentator that I can find says that what Isaiah is doing here is he's pointing to this child's deity. I mean, the, the, the child is, is born. That's his humanity. He'll be born. He'll be real. Human. Born. Son is given. That will be his fact that he's deity. He is, is God. I mean, this is, this is quite unlike anything else. This, this God-man it says, and he'll be called, look what he's going to be called, Wonderful Counselor. Uh, we think wonderful is just like kind of cool. That's kind of, uh, wonderful means beyond us. It really means that deity word. It is so intense, so heavy, so mind-blowing. It's, it's otherworldly. 
And the counselor was not just someone you went to when you were struggling with emotional stuff. The, the, the counselors, like the kings, always had their counselors. You got someone who's attacking you. You know, what, should we attack them back? You, know, you listen to your counselor. And if he was a good one, he got you out of a lot of trouble. And what do I do with my kids? And he would tell you. And what do I do about the crop issue? And he'd tell you. And if you got a good counselor, he gives you wisdom and direction in what he's saying here. For these people who are getting under judgment right now, they're in all kinds of pain. He says, this baby, is, is, who is God-man, has counsel, direction for you. It is always right. It's, it's, it's perfect. You're going, that's amazing. He says that, that this child's name will be Mighty God. Now, I'll tell you, a lot of uh, scholars have tried to, to tone down these words because they know that these point to the future Messiah, Jesus. And, of course, Jesus can't be considered Mighty God, so they've tried to fix him. But you can't fix this one at all. There's just no other interpretation. Mighty God. And any, anybody who says Jesus was a nice guy and he was cool and he was sweet, but he wasn't God, they just don't know the Bible is what it comes down to. I mean, you can't get clearer or more straight up than this. His name will be Mighty God. All of the power of heaven in this little baby. I think he has a handle on our, our darkness and I think he can take care of that. He will be called Everlasting Father. And this creates some grief for us sometimes. Because we know, you know, there's God the Son, and God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's never called Father or Son, and so how come the Son is called Father? And Part of the problem is we take our New Testament theology and we're reading it back into the Old Testament. It's got to be careful about that, because the word Father would mean originator, author, the, the beginning, and Colossians 1.16, talking about Jesus says, for by him, Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And so the deal is this baby is going to be one who knows them all so well. He's got kind of rights over them. He, he was their author. But also fatherhood speaks of uh, concern. Let me ask you, parents. Is there anything more painful than when something bad happens to one of your children? Oh, man. No matter what else is going on in life, everything else falls into the shadows if your one of your children is hurting, doesn't it? And you would give anything, anything, in order to, to, to fix and to help. Uh, fatherhood speaks of a deep love for and care for. And he's saying, this, this solution, this, this baby coming, is going to love you like you would never, ever know. He's going to care for you, and he's going to have all the power of heaven and almighty God, and his direction and wisdom will always be perfect. And he says that this baby is also going to be called Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. And you know that's got to be significant for war-torn Jerusalem. I mean, think of Israel for just a minute. Have they ever known peace? From the beginning to today, it's always war after war after war. Now, take nationalistic Israel out of the picture, though. God's people, and here's the picture. God's people in this fallen world, if they're living for him, will never have peace. 
I mean, it's not just look at the war-torn world, which is all over the place. Look at the war-torn heart of yours. We could use peace. And, 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 and re- remember, in Jesus' birth, the shepherds, you know, this is fast forward 700 years, these shepherds are hanging out in literal darkness because it's a dark night on the hills of Bethlehem, darkness, and suddenly they see a bright light, literally. The angels are there and the angels start to sing. They're, they're telling them about the birth of Jesus and they're saying, the glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace on men whom, whom his favor rests. He's the prince of peace. That's why he came. He came that way for us. And then, let me fast forward 700 years to a a city. I call it a city, but it's really more like a little hamlet type of place. Nazareth, located in Galilee of the Gentiles, in that Zebulun, Naphtali area. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. In Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah says that this will be a sign. The virgin will be with child. And you will name the child Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah saw the 700 years before it happened. Now, a- application. What do we do? Two things. You might be here saying, you know what? Uh, I have I'm not anti-Jesus or anything, but I really have not seen any kind of light or hope or all that. I'm not sure what to do with, with that. Let me propose a possibility. If you went to the doctor and he said, what you've got is chronic and fatal, but if this vial of medicine, this will heal you. You go, oh. so you take this thing and you go home and you, you put it on the mantle and, and you, you just like build like a little shrine for it. And you have like a... a, a a resemblance of it made into a necklace and you're wearing this little vial around your neck and, and you have a picture painted of the vial and you put it on the wall of your house too and you're still not feeling any better though you're feeling still sick but that's what the doctor said and you got the vial and so maybe uh, you just need to deny reality or something you're not, you're not sure what the issue is uh, I think a lot of people treat Jesus this way they don't hate him they're not anti-Jesus uh, they think he's okay. Maybe they've got a little picture of him in their house or a little necklace thing with him. They're okay. But they've never internalized. You know, they, they, they have never stopped to say, this is in Galilee of the Gentiles. This is, this, we're not talking Jerusalem, uh, holiness headquarters. You know, we're, we're talking 
It's not in religion. I, I need to look to Christ who came for the purpose of dying for, for us and to say, Lord, here's my life. I want to surrender it to you. It's not you and me trying to make this work. It's, it's I have failed and I am hopeless and I just give you my life. At that point, according to scripture, a light will dawn in your heart anyway. Be waiting for that second advent. Now, maybe you're, you're here and you have come to know Christ. But still, right now, you're saying, yeah, but, but life is... You know, if in fact your joy is dependent on this world going well, then what will happen? You know how this is going to work. You're going to get it. Yay, I got a job. And boy, that's a bad job. You're going you're gonna to hate it. Yay, I met the girl of my dreams. And you get married. Then you go, whoa, she's the girl of my nightmares. Yay, I've got kids. It's wonderful. And then, oh, something bad's going to happen to them. And it keeps going like that all through life until you get to the end. And then it drops and it just keeps going. I mean, how's that for optimism, right? Oh, that's the best we've got. If your joy is on what's happening here. Yeah, you might be up today. Good, I'm glad, I'm happy for you. You know as well as I do, tomorrow you probably won't be. Something's going to go on. It's just the way life is. But Jesus, this is so cool. Hebrews lets us know that Jesus, because of the joy set before him, endured the pain of the cross. In other words, he had all the stuff. But he knew he lived for a different world. He looked towards the different world. That's why Paul could say, our momentary light afflictions, nah, nothing compared to. Paul kept looking this way. Perhaps you're looking here, and you want so much here to be good. Me too. But as long as we keep looking here, our joy won't be there. Or it'll be like this, to look to what God has for us. And so my goal for myself, for us, this Christmas season is that we have our focus realigned, maybe lined up for the first time, towards him, towards this baby, not solution, of uh, programming or whatever else, but this baby who is Almighty God, wonderful counselor, Almighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, is our solution for our hopelessness.